The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Actually, thinking about the uh, faith we confessed this past week, as had a, a death in uh, my family, and um, my my grandmother, not in my immediate family. You would have heard about that by now. Uh, and just thinking about what we confess to believe, that line that says, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And I'm thinking about, you know, we haven't had a funeral in this church in a, in a while, but it's going to happen. And what sort of hope do we have when a member dies? The one who dies in the Lord. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And what a glorious, glorious hope we have. And, you know, it really can become uh, just routine to, to recite these things, but do so with a believing heart and recognizing the, the hope we really do have is really a wonderful, wonderful thing. Well, we are uh, in the book of Proverbs this afternoon, Proverbs 24, so I invite you to turn there now to Proverbs chapter. Uh, 24, and we are looking at verses 1 through 22. We kind of covered a little bit last week, but um, we're continuing to cover this week, focusing mainly on chapter 24, verses 1 through 2. So let's give our attention to God Himself as He addresses us through His written and infallible Word. Proverbs 24, Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their hearts devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise counsel you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Wisdom is too high for a fool, and the gate he does not open his mouth. Whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Do no violence to his home. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again. But the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be cut off, will be put out. 
My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise. For disaster will arise suddenly from them, and who knows the ruin that will come from them both. Well, this concludes the reading of God's Word. May God now be pleased to illumine His Word here to the blessing of our soul. Well, when we receive an offer on something, whether it's a job offer or it is an offer for a school or an offer on a house, let's say we're selling, and if it's more than one offer, we need to weigh which offer is the best. And this is what has been happening in the book of Proverbs. There are two offers that are before us. The one is by Lady Wisdom that says, Come to my house and you will be satisfied. But the other is by Lady Folly that says, No, living in sin, eating bread that is stolen, indulging in sin, that is true life and that is where it is at. And Proverbs has been saying, You need to take wisdom's offer and not the offer of sin in this world. But even for those who have taken wisdom's offer, we may have, quote-unquote, buyer's remorse. Maybe I should have taken the other offer. Maybe I should have taken Lady Folly's offer. And that is actually what is happening when we envy the wicked. That is when we want to be like them. They seem to have a better, more fun life. Not weighed down by restrictions and responsibilities and tied to boundaries. They seem to have an advantage by deceiving and bending the rules. Why we can miss out on opportunities. It's like passing up on that big buck because it would have been a violation of the regulations only to see some poacher go and get it. We can say, well, I'm just stuck with the same old ball and chain who has offended me many times, while the wicked are out there starting new and indulging in the forbidden fruit. We can think I'm missing out. Did I make a mistake at taking wisdom's offer? And of course the answer is no, but our flesh rises up and could say, I actually want to be like the wicked. Well, our passage helps us out with this. We see verse 1, call us not to envy the wicked. And then we see the same thing in verse 19, do not envy the wicked. So that is the context of this passage. Rather than envying them, we should have God's perspective and even pity them because they are a slave to their sin. Now last week, uh, we began this by considering three people we should not envy. The first was the rebellious teen, and the second was the drunkard which also includes the one who is a glutton and one who is sexually immoral, who indulges in sin. Well, we today are continuing that, and we're considering the third man that we should not envy, a wicked man, and that is the powerful man. And really, we should call this the earthly strength man. It just doesn't sound good. So we stuck with the powerful man. But this is somebody who's strong according to the world and not according to to God's word. And so we see beginning in verses 1 through 2 with this call again to not be envious of evil men. And the reason given is because their hearts devise violence. Uh, they want to use physical strength uh, in order to move in their 
purposes and they talk of trouble. And somebody may say in their heart, well, violent people and aggressive people seem to get things done. They seem to get what they want and they're not so concerned about following the rules like I am. But the Father goes on to explain how a stable life is actually built. It's not by violence. Rather, it says in verses 3-4, through by wisdom a house is built. And by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Now this is not talking about mere construction of a house. This is talking about how somebody builds a home. How somebody has a stable life. And it is by wisdom, not by violence or robbery, not by deceit or pushing the boundaries. Rather, it is by wisdom, which involves hard work, planning, stewardship, as we have been seeing. And as we see here, this is not only how one establishes a home, but how someone fills it with pleasant things, even. And it is the wise and not the violent who are strong. We see this in verses 5-6. through six. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. So it's not the ones who are the most physically strong, the most aggressive or violent who are the strong ones. Rather, the Scripture says it's the one who is wise, who is full of strength. War is not waged by mere power. Rather, you need to be crafty and outsmart your opponent. You need to know how to play to your strengths and utilize every piece of your arsenal maximally. And that is what wisdom does. It tells you how to do it. And we have something very similar in sports. You can have the greatest strengthening and conditioning program, but if you don't know how to coach, if you don't know how to utilize your best weapons to exploit the other team's weakness, it is going to be for naught. I know this because I'm a Cornhusker fan. Only a few people understand what I'm talking about. And we had uh, one of the best uh quarterbacks the most talented for the last four years and he did not do very well but he just transferred to another school uh, to complete a, a couple more years under a master's program and he's one of the best players in the country now and that's because of coaching but that's what wisdom does wisdom helps exploit that strength and that is why it enhances might as we see here but because the fool does not receive instruction uh, he has nothing to say of true benefit as we see in verse 7. Uh, back in verse 6, we see that being wise involves wise counsel, receiving counsel. We've seen this come up time and time again, that a wise person is not somebody who's just inherently wise, but somebody who receives instruction, correction, and counsel. But because a fool does not receive this, he has nothing to say of true benefit. Verse 7 Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the gate he does not open his mouth. So the gate is the place where people go to hear wisdom and instruction by the elders or anyone else who has wisdom. Well, it's there that the fool has nothing to say. He may have plenty to say outside of that in expressing his own opinion, as Proverbs 18.2 says, but when it really matters, 
That is, at the gate, he has nothing of value to say. His opinion is not regarded so as to be heard at the gate. But he, but how he is viewed instead is in verses 8 and 9. It says, whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. So rather than speaking wisdom at the gate, he is instead seen as a fool. The schemer, one known for having evil intentions and therefore cannot be trusted. He plans evil rather than speaks wisdom. And so he uses deceit for his advantage and against others. And so he is an abomination not only to God, but to mankind, to his own community. And the theme of the measure of true strength continues in verse 10. We read there, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. By the world standard, someone who is strong is someone who's a valiant warrior, macho man, can endure something physically trying and straining. He can do a heavy deadlift. Run a marathon. Win a boxing match. Do several hikes in the mountains carrying heavy packs. However, when adversity comes, when trials and difficulty comes, he loses control in anger almost immediately, loses his joy, grumbles and complains rather than gives thanks or runs to idols and lust to comfort him. This does not demonstrate strength but rather great weakness. One's true strength is not tried in the gym, but rather the furnace of affliction in adversity. This should humble us and cause us to call to God for wisdom, which leads to true strength, because we do faint in adversity. We really are weak. Uh, Oftentimes we blame the circumstances. If only the circumstances were better, I would not be like this. But rather, the adversity shows us how weak we really are, and how we must seek God's strength so that we may grow in strength. A strength is also seen in rescuing others when it costs you, verses 11 through 12. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he... Who keeps watch over your soul? Know it. And will he not repay man according to his work? So a violent man demonstrates his power in taking advantage of others for his own selfish gain. He will use aggression, violence, manipulation, and deceit. However, true strength is to be used not to take advantage of others, but rather for the advantage of others. The point here is that when it is in your power to act in God's providence to rescue someone, then you should if you are able. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone needs to become a law enforcement officer and go out and try to find those who are in danger rather than just sitting at home. Rather, the point is, if you are able to act, then you should. It's like the Good Samaritan who saw that man left to die and Stop to help him. And we could come up with a number of different applications here. It's 
getting involved when it might cost you time or, or money or reputation. It's not wanting to help someone or step forward as a witness because you're afraid of a criminal's buddies or you just don't want to get involved. We can apply this to church discipline. One who is stumbling his way on the path to spiritual death as evidenced by how he's living his life. We must reach out to as James 5.19-20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We can apply this to evangelism. As someone who is on their way to eternal death, that we should share the life-giving message with the Gospel now, this doesn't mean that we need to go on the street corner and yell from a microphone. That actually could be a hindrance. As Paul says in Colossians 4, 5-6, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So even in considering how we are living our life, so that we put no stumbling block in the message of the Gospel is an application of this. And I don't uh, believe that David Marquis would mind me sharing this, but telling me that God used the, the godliness of a particular pastor to persuade him of the Gospel. Now, of course, ultimately it was the message that, that saved, but the messenger who brought the message is more credible and attractive because of his godliness. Now, the opposite of using one's strength and power uh, to rescue others is to lie in wait to attack others. Verses 15 through 16. Lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Do no violence to his home. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Now, this could be translated and is probably better translated as lie not in wait, O oh, wicked being addressed to the wicked. Lying in wait is an analogy taken from a predatory animal, like a lion, or a dog, or a bear, or as I learned recently, wolves. Waiting for the perfect opportunity to attack. The reason that the wicked are told not to do this against the righteous is because though the righteous man falls seven times, yet he will still get up. Seven is the number for perfection or completion in Scripture. So this is saying that the righteous man completely falls. But though he completely falls, he will get up. And the, the predator's perfect chance to strike is when the prey has fallen. When the prey has completely fallen. That is the moment that the predator is waiting for. However, while the righteous make him fall completely, he has the God of Israel to lift him up. And so the wicked is warned not to go against the righteous. The righteous still fall, but God is their help. Not so with the wicked. The end of verse 16 says that they stumble in times of calamity. Their strength is weak. They fall in the day of trouble. They do not have God 
with them. They are left to their own human strength, which is no strength at all. And so they must be dependent upon the best set of circumstances in order to be happy and fulfilled. Now, this does not mean that we should delight in our enemy's fall. Verses 17-18 through Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Now, who wouldn't want to see their enemy fall? I mean, this person is an enemy for a reason, right? He goes against you. He lies in wait for you. He's a threat to you. He brings much difficulty in your life. So to see him fall and stumble would cause you to rejoice. And even if you do not do it out loud, you might do it secretly in your heart. Verse 17 says, However, God who knows the thoughts of our heart will see it, and He will turn His anger away from Him, implying that the reason this enemy is falling is because of God's anger against this man, His judgment and His providence. And the reason for this is because God calls us to love our enemies. Why we're not to rejoice. He calls us to love our enemies and not delight in their harm. And so God then turns to discipline us by turning away from striking our enemy. Now, this does not mean that we can't seek justice or delight in justice. Neither does this mean that we can't rejoice to see righteous leaders come into office and wicked ones leave. As Proverbs 11.10 says, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. However, this is a personal grudge and bitterness that this is talking about that delights to see one's enemies paid back rather than in delighting to see them come to salvation. But you may say, okay, what am I to do if I can't attack them myself? Verses 15 through 16. Neither can I delight in their downfall. Verses 17 through 18. So should I just sit back and be okay with them getting away with their evil? Verses 19 through 20. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Now to fret means to be very worried, so that you are greatly impacted over something. In this case, it's because of evildoers. This could be general in the sense of the world we live in. And I think that this is why sometimes people get overly concerned uh, about politics. Of course, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care or be concerned, but sometimes it goes way too far because of fretting over evildoers. And, and this may lend itself to being envious of the wicked and that we become like them in our demeanor, methods, and speech. Well, no more Mr. Nice Guy. It hasn't been working. I'm going to be like them and do to them what they have done to me. And while we want to exercise proper civic responsibility, yet we do not want to fret over the wicked. And verse 20 tells us why. For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Not only does not only is God in control now, so that nothing happens apart from His eternal decree, the wicked also are temporary. 
they will come to an end. God will judge them and forever cast them out of His presence. And His eternal kingdom will be established, which has no end. And we who believe and have been forgiven will forever be in that kingdom of everlasting righteousness, peace, and joy. So instead of fretting over wicked men, what we are to do instead is what verses 21-22 through tell us. My son, fear the Lord and the King, and do not join with those who do otherwise. For disaster will arise suddenly from them, and who knows the ruin that will come from them both. Rather than fretting over the wicked, being so concerned about them, we are to fear the Lord. We are to realize that the anger of the Lord is great against the wicked, and that and that the Lord at any moment will come back, and He will pour out His wrath on them. They will face unimaginable pain and torment. And the Father here also tells the Son to fear the King. The King was God's appointed civic official who executed judgment on God's behalf. They are the ones that could truly create calamity and disaster. A king could wage war and decree off with your head, but God is the ultimate power and authority and can punish the wicked and also discipline us. However, let us keep in mind, first and foremost, that this king has loved us with an eternal love. All that God will do to the wicked, He has unleashed on His Son in our place. We are the wicked by nature. We deserve to have the King's wrath unleashed on us in full. But our Lord Jesus Christ stood condemned in our place as the wicked man. His life came to an end. His lamp was put out. As He took our place on the cross, calamity went out from God and was poured out on Him. This is what He received on our behalf so that we would receive eternal life and reign with Him. Reign with the King of kings in His eternal kingdom and experience pleasures forevermore. This is the complete opposite of what we deserve. He rescued us who were being taken away to death by being taken away to death Himself. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter in order to save us from that slaughter. He spoke up for us, pleading for us, Father, forgive them, and whose, word, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This, brothers and sisters, causes us to fear the Lord. This causes us to stand in awe of Him. What great love that He, who is the righteous one, would stand in our place as the wicked one so that we would be recognized by the Lord as the righteous one. And this causes us not to envy or fret over the wicked, but rather to turn from our own wickedness. And rest in our Lord who stood as the wicked in our place. And to pity the wicked who do not yet know of this love, pity, grace, and forgiveness that the Lord 
and so kindly and sovereignly revealed to us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we are so thankful for the Gospel of grace. And we are thankful that we have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. And we confess we do not walk often in this wisdom, but often in foolishness. And so we ask that the Gospel would be so implanted in us that we are compelled by the love of Christ to walk wisely. For his, not only for our benefit, but ultimately for His glory. Because He is the King of love who gave Himself up for us to deliver us from the death that the wicked will receive. The death that we should have received, but that the Lord received on our behalf. Oh Lord, help us to live grateful lives and walking in wisdom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.